tell you a quick story as we're getting started. Uh, quick reintroduction again. Uh, I'm Robbie. Here's Sarah and uh, our kids, Elijah and Layla, who will probably be shoeless by the time they get back to us because they just really don't like shoes. Um, they'll be back in here in a little while since they're with kids. Uh, but before I let Sarah share a little bit about uh, what we've been doing, uh, I thought it would be really cool to take a moment just to share with you something that has to do with you, actually, that happened in my life. Um, Justin didn't know this till last night, actually. About three, probably three and a half years ago, uh, I was speaking nearby. Uh, there's a, a Chi Alpha group that meets uh, from Fairmont University. I was sharing with them. Driving back home, I ended up going up High Street. And, um, man, I just thought, this needs to be a place where there's a church planted. This needs to be a place where there's a lot of ministry happening. There's a lot of people here. A lot of people here. It's just, I felt in my heart, there's a lot of people who need to know how good God is in Christ. And as that feeling arose, I just started praying, God, would you plant a church here? And it was so cool when Justin told me, this not that many years later, hey, we're planting this church. And I'd actually for completely forgot about that too. We're driving through Morgantown again last night, and I thought, wow, God, you're just so gracious. So you guys just don't know. God knows what he's doing with y'all, <laughs> all right? He knows what he's doing with Pastor Justin and Kara, and um, it's really his church. I like that, Matt, that you said that so much. This is a meeting space, but this is his church. So, honey, take it away. Let them know who we are and what we do. Okay. So, um, well, we've already been introduced twice, so I hope you know who we are now. And <laughs> what we do, just a, a short little introduction for who we are. Um, I'm from Memphis, Tennessee. Robbie's from Maryland. We met at Bible College in Missouri, and it was really very early on in our relationship that the Lord began to deal with us individually and as a couple and just really break our heart um, for unreached people groups and specifically for Muslims. Uh, we took a class on Islam in college where we learned um, so much about what, what Islam is and um, the ideologies, and it was heartbreaking to learn that it's just like they sanitized Jesus. Jesus is in the Quran, but everything that makes him Lord, that makes him Savior, has been removed from that. And so for many in the world, there's just no access to the truth about Jesus. And so Robbie and I responded to that, and uh, we started praying and asking the Lord, where would you have us go? And our first stop on this adventure was to the country of Sudan and northern Sudan. And we spent a year there. And at one moment, um, the Lord did awesome things in that year. It was a, I, when people are like, how was your time in Sudan? I say it was awful and wonderful, all in one, because it was a hard year. Um, but it was an amazing year. And there was one moment there where we were actually in um, a tent with nomadic people in the middle of the desert in northern Sudan completely unreached people group and we we felt the lord say this is what i have for you and I, we were both like whoa like he it was it was an amazing moment so we came back to the states after that year and we we shared this story and we we're so pumped and so we raised a budget to go back to sudan and our first stop was cairo egypt which was language school so we get to cairo egypt and after a month of being in cairo it's like all the poop hit the fan in sudan it was bad. The, the Sudanese government hunted down every single missionary from every single organization and expelled everybody. And on top of that, Robbie and I learned that some forward-thinking people within our organization had put our names down on a company in Sudan to help us get back. But now that the government had that list, we were now um, banned from coming into the country. Uh, so that was a huge shock, a huge disappointment, and we were like, oh, well, Lord, we thought we heard you. We thought we heard you say Sudan, and so 
Um, we stayed faithful. We stayed in Cairo, Egypt for almost three years, just studying Arabic and also working alongside a live dead team uh, that was in Cairo. So now if you ask us, like, can you speak Arabic? I'd say, yes, Robbie sounds like an Arab when he speaks Arabic. I sound like an American girl who tries really hard to speak Arabic. <laughs> it's a challenge, but we learned how to share the gospel in Arabic, how to glorify Jesus in Arabic. And our time in Cairo was awesome. We had a baby there, so that was cool and hard and wonderful. <laughs> so, um, and it was towards the end of this time in Cairo that we were really laying it before the Lord. All right, Lord, it's time to go back to the States. Where do you want us to go after here? We've been trained. We have language. Where do you want us? And we were told about an opportunity in a city in the country of Oman, in case you don't know where Oman is, it's okay. We didn't know for a long time. Oman is in the Arabian Peninsula. It's kind of between Yemen and Saudi Arabia, 100% um, Muslim. And we were told about a little city there called Salala, which is on the border of Yemen. And Salala is very special for a lot of reasons, but God does something so cool in nature there where if you think Arabian Peninsula, it's hot desert wasteland, very hot except for Salala. It's in this valley, and there's th this one season in the year where a mist just descends on this valley, and it turns into what a colleague described it as uh, Scotland with camels. It's just beautiful, lush, green, and everywhere else in the Arabian Peninsula, it's still ridiculously hot, except for this one city. So you can imagine what happens. People from all over the Arabian Peninsula flock to this little city to vacation, and they basically just sit there and chill for four months while it's baking where it, from whatever city they come from. So Qataris, Kuwaitis, Saudis, Yemenis, all these people congregate in this little town. What an amazing opportunity. So on top of that, the nation of Oman, like I said, it's 100% Muslim. We know, we have heard rumor of 13 Omani Christians in the entire country, and that's still a rumor. It's a stronghold, and it's not that missionaries haven't gone. Missionaries have gone to Oman. Many of them have died. Many of them have come back. It's just hard, guys. So, but Ravi and I went to Oman and we, we went to Salala and it was like immediately when we hit the ground, we were like, yes, this is awesome. This is, God, you're in this. And we had amazing, I could talk for way longer than I should about just amazing opportunities we had we were, when we were in Salala. So the dream is to go back to Salala to, to launch a new live dead team in this uh, little city and, um, we can't go as missionaries, obviously, because that would work out very poorly for us. So we're going to go as tourism consultants, to, and the dream is to bring people on vacation who just happen to love Jesus and want to share Jesus with everyone around them, and so they can do that, and w we can provide that for them. Like, yeah, come see Salala. Go tell everybody about Jesus. So um, we're, we're hoping to partner with Chi Alphas, with churches, with individuals who want to come on a short-term or a long-term trip and share the gospel with the lost. We're so excited about this opportunity. We think it's incredible, and we're, we're asking for your help. We can't do it alone. Would you please pray for us? There were days, I'll be, honest, I'll be real, there were days in Cairo where I really wanted to quit. It's hard. It's not easy, and it was only the prayers of the saints that kept us there, and where we're going in Oman in many ways is going to be more challenging please take a prayer card with you when you leave and please put it somewhere and please pray for us. We need it. People say, you know, missionaries are superheroes and um, we love being loved. Who doesn't? But we're ordinary people. 
and where sometimes I'm scared when I'm overseas. Sometimes we're sick. Sometimes we're discouraged. We need your prayers. Uh, we also need support, so thank you for giving to the missions program here. It's, it's amazing to partner with you, so thank you for that. And the last way you could help us is to come. Um, I showed Robbie something I wrote in my journal this morning, and I've never, I've never said this in a church before, so I don't, this isn't a spiel I do at every church. I really feel like the Lord is calling someone from this group to join us. And that's not something I can ask you to do. That's something that the Holy Spirit asks you to do. But if the Holy Spirit speaks to you and says, I want you to go, the invitation is on the table. We're starting a team. Robbie and I can't do it alone. We need you through your prayers, your giving. And if the Lord speaks to your heart and says, go with them, the invitation's on the table. So that's us, and I'm going to pass it off to Robbie. Thank you guys so much. You guys are awesome church. I wish I could just stay here, but we have to go out to other churches too. So thanks. Thanks, honey. All right, so thanks, sweetheart. A little bit, Sarah mentioned something called Live Dead, which I want to unpack for you a little bit before I get uh, started. Um, Live Dead is a, um, like a movement within the Assemblies of God, which is like a denomination. It's a fellowship of churches. Uh, it's a movement within the Assemblies of God to return to what we believe is a biblical premise for missions. What is missions? And um, Live Dead seeks to do three things, uh, just to plant the church, among unreached peoples through teams. And I want to unpack that a little bit for you so you get a real picture of like what we're doing. Yeah, we're probably going to be something like travel agents in terms of our job, but our calling is something a bit different. So utilizing the job, hopefully, by the grace of God, with your prayers and giving and going, all the stuff that Sarah said, we want to plant the church among unreached peoples through a team. What does that look like? So when I say plant the church, uh, what I mean is like we're not going to go stand on the street corners and preach to everybody. Um, that could happen. It would be a very short trip. Um, but we will, you remember when Jesus talked about the, the kingdom of God, it's like a man who went out to the field and he sowed seed and some of it fell on good ground and some of it fell on like kind of bad soil. Uh, the only way we can know what kind of people are, what kind of soil is there is to sow seed. And the image that Jesus was communicating is that the seed is the gospel. We go and every single person we meet, we make it clear from the, the first meeting that we love Jesus, we love his word and we trust it that it has authority. And from that moment on, we try as much as we can to communicate this good news about what God has done for us in Christ, what he's completed for us in Christ. And um, from there, guys, we don't just count people up, you know, and send a report back to the states. We make disciples. The word of God says, this is uh, in 2 Timothy 2.2, if you want to look it up, if you have a Bible. Uh, Paul, one of the apostles and a missionary, told one of his disciples, you know, the things I've taught you in the presence of many people, go on and teach other people who can teach uh, how to say these things too. In other words, the ideas were there to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. So that's what we mean by planting the church. It's, it's leading people to follow and obey Jesus as their Lord, gathering them together in a community like this, and um, as the Lord leads, appointing his leadership through prayer and fasting, and then entrusting God's church to God and the people that he's appointed to lead it. And then we move on to the next place that God takes us. So that's what we mean by planning the church. Among unreached peoples, what do I mean by that? I don't mean lost people, because the fact is, when we talk about lost people in the church, generally we mean people who don't know Christ, people who are cut off from God's saving grace because they either haven't heard about it or because they're refusing to believe that God gave them the gift of eternal life in Jesus. 
And the point is, I know a lot of lost people. You know a lot of lost people. You probably work with them. They're in your family. You might feel lost. I don't know. But the difference between a lost person here and there is that here we have access. You can come to a church like this. You can pick up a Bible. You can look up something on the Internet. You can listen in on TV. You, know, you can go to a Christian bookstore. There's so many points of access to the gospel that over there there's just not. There's not a church that someone can go to. There's not a Bible. And, and at least in the reality of two of the people groups that we hope to work with, uh, there's not even a Bible in their language yet. So they have no access. They're not just lost. It's that there's no point of access for them for the gospel. And that's why Jesus said, when you pray, pray this. Pray, that the Lord, pray to the Lord of the harvest, God, the Father, that he will send out workers into his harvest field, this image of a field being ready for harvest. He says, because... The harvest is plentiful. There's lots of people who are ready to receive this good news about what God has done for us in Christ, but what did he say? The workers are few. So pray, guys. Pray with us. You may not be one of the people that the Lord taps on the shoulder today and says, it's you. And guys, every one of us, Sarah and I included, every one of us who says I'm a Christian is responsible for God to say, Lord, am I an answer to that prayer? Am I the one that's one of those labors that you're sending into the harvest? So pray that God sends out laborers, guys. Planting the church among unreached peoples through team. So that's what Sarah talked about. We do it in team because that's how Jesus sent his disciples out, two by two. Paul and the other apostles, they went out with a big old crowd of people. We can't do it alone. Sarah said people have been missionaries in the Arab world for a long time, hundreds of years. They don't last very long sometimes, though. And we recognize that as we go, we, we gain strength and encouragement from each other on a team. Sarah and I were part of a large team in Cairo, Big old team, like 75 adults, 25 kids, and we needed every single one of those people. And you know what they did for us? Because we call the church the body of Christ, what do you think they did? They showed us Jesus. We had this representation of Christ through 75, 73 other adults and <laughs> 25 kids that followed the Lord, and we were encouraged in walking with Jesus there. And our community testifies to the authority of God's word. It testifies to the authority in saying this is a true message. So that's what we mean when we talk about live dead. And living dead simply means this. It means we follow a Savior who's crucified. He said, if you take up your cross, if you're going to come after me, you need to take up a cross and follow me. But y'all know that's not the end of the story. When we follow a crucified Savior, he didn't stay dead. He rose up from the dead. He gives us eternal life. He gives us a place with him eternally. So the road to that place, though, happens. The gospel does advance. The kingdom of God is coming. But the truth is, if you look in the scriptures, it often advances through suffering and hardship. We're okay with that. Jesus is okay with that. Our Lord was okay with that. He did that. We go with him not only to the cross, but to the resurrection. We want you guys to go with us in that regard. So that's what we're inviting you to. We're not just saying live dead. <laughs> the emphasis is on live in Christ. Right? Amen? All right, cool. Well, okay. I'm going to preach now. You ready? <laughs> okay. How many of you heard, have heard of the book of Jonah in the Bible, or you've heard the story of Jonah before? Just you know, raise your hand real quick because these really fancy lights are kind of bright. Okay, I see you guys. Yeah, um, Jonah was also someone who was called by God. We're going to talk about his story today, but before we do, I want us to go to Matthew chapter 12. If you have a Bible, I think it might pop up on the screen here in a minute. Just, yeah, there you go. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 40. And if you don't have it in your hand, you can just read it up on the overhead. It says this. 
Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation, and they will condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus was condemning the sin of these Pharisees. These, these are religious teachers. These are experts in the law, like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those books of the Bible that contain all those laws we hear about from God, they were experts in this. And Jesus was condemning them because he was pointing to something that had happened in the life of a prophet named Jonah 800 years earlier. In other words, Jesus claimed that he had, would demonstrate his authority, the truth of who he was, by the same power that brought Jonah out of a fish that had swallowed him. And just as God commanded the fish to release Jonah, God would command the gates of death to open wide so that his son could step forth victorious over sin, the devil, death itself. And just as Nineveh, which was a wicked city, repented from sin at Jonah's message, the world is now being called to repentance in the message of Jesus. When we say repentance, we mean a turning from sin and turning to God. This isn't a children's story, even if you heard it as a child, and maybe that was the last time you heard it. It's history. In fact, it's so true, it's so authoritative that Jesus says, this is the authority for who I am. And I've already shown the world who I am through this event that happened in the life of a man named Jonah. And now he comes to confirm it through the life that he lived. It, at the heart of this story of Jonah is God, a God who judges sin, but he offers, offers everyone mercy. So Nineveh, a little bit of a background on that, was the capital city in Assyria. Assyria is where we have modern-day Syria, right? But way back in the day, about 800 years before the time of Jesus, Assyria was a wicked, vicious nation. How, why can I say that? They had passed through a lot of other countries, including Israel, and what had they done? They had ruthlessly raped, skinned alive, beheaded, impaled, not just men, but women, boys, girls. They were a wicked and threatening people, and they were one that was, frankly, pretty easy to hate. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, we all know those are Jesus' words, or if you, have, if you don't know, you've probably heard them before. But could Jesus really mean that we're to love and pray for people as wicked and as vicious as the Assyrians? Now, if the words Jesus spoke to us have any value, then had he been preaching in Jonah's day, he would have called the Jews to love, pray for, and bless the Assyrians. If Jesus is real, if his words are trustworthy, then that's exactly what he would have said to them. You know, four years ago, I was really struggling uh, both of us, but me in particular, was, we're, we're really still, okay, Sarah's saying no, both of us, we're really struggling to love and bless somebody in our lives. We had moved into uh, a new apartment. There was a local church in Maryland that was being so generous to us. They were paying our rent for the year we were in the States, getting ready to go back overseas, this time to Egypt. And um, during that year, while we were raising support and doing a lot of travel like this, uh, we got to know the landlady by an accident that had happened in our apartment. Like two weeks into moving there, our air conditioning had gone out. We had a new baby. That was Elijah when he was like an infant. And, you know, we were all like anxious parents, and it was hot and uncomfortable. So 
you know, we said, well, we should really give our landlady a call. So I looked it up in the lease. It was her responsibility to pay for it. Yes. And when I gave her a call, I said, hey, our air conditioning broke. was wondering if you could send somebody to fix it. And there was this kind of like, you ever heard of that phrase, like a pregnant pause, like a meaning in the silence? And, uh, and she said, okay, I see how it's going to be. I, okay, you're just going to be one of those people I see this year. You know, I know you're a minister, but how dare you expecting me to pay for this? You're, people are already paying for so much in your life, and you're expecting me to pay for your air conditioning? How selfish. You call yourself a minister of the gospel? So as you might imagine, I'm actually really easygoing, but I actually started getting really upset <laughs> as she was talking. And, um, and that was the way every single conversation went for the next year. And I wish I could say the air conditioning was the last thing that broke, but it wasn't. <laughs> there was lots of stuff I needed to talk to her about. And I was really struggling to love this woman, to pray for her, to bless her. But, you know, uh, I don't think that I'm or Sarah are the only people who struggle to love and bless people sometimes who uh, are difficult people in our lives. We all do. We have difficult landlords. We work with difficult people. Maybe we have difficult roommates. Maybe they're sitting next to us. I don't know. We grew up in a difficult home, perhaps, difficult family members. You know, we feel the sting of broken promises from those who are supposed to love us. People take advantage of us. People lie. People do all sorts of horrible things. They're different from us. They're backwards. They're not worthy of our time or our love, much less our mercy. If we're honest, every single one of us has at some point in our life assigned someone or some group of people the label enemy. We've said God's mercy is for us, but it's not for them. In other words, it's okay for God not to give me what I deserve, but they have it coming. I know someone who thinks a lot like that. In fact, exactly like that. He's your guest speaker today. And the truth is, if all of us are willing to be honest, at some point in our lives, if you've looked in the mirror, you probably know someone like that too. And if you're surprised, good news. We know exactly what it feels like to be Jonah. Because this is exactly how God began speaking to Jonah. We're going to go quickly through the life of Jonah. Uh, and what I want to do is retell his story. And through focusing on several key events in his story, uh, I want us to collectively, all of us, not just a few of us, not if those of you who've been here a long time, but if it's your first time today being at this church, I want all of us to collectively come to this conclusion that we ought to show mercy. Because our Heavenly Father is merciful. He wants us to look like him. We ought to show mercy because our Heavenly Father is merciful and he wants us to look like him. So we're going to move quick, but go ahead and go to Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. It's pretty dramatic, but what God is doing is he assigns a man named Jonah with the task of going to the wicked Assyrians and he was going to tell them that God isn't going to tolerate their sin and their wickedness anymore. You know, those of us who work know that we work to get a paycheck. There's a payday coming. And the scriptures tell us, this is Romans 6.23, if you want to look it up, it says that the wages, the paycheck for sin is death. God is so holy. God is so holy. That means he's spotless, he's pure, he's sinless, he's good always in everything. A holy God can't tolerate sin like this. 
the wages, the paycheck for sin is death. And God is saying, Jonah, you need to go tell them their payday is coming. They have to know. But it's not just Nineveh that's facing God's judgment. Take a look at verse 3. Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish, which is a city far away. And he rose to flee from, to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship. Joppa was a coastal city. He found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This uh, story was originally recorded in Hebrew, and a Hebrew reader would have understood that this phrasing going down, which is repeated several times, doesn't just mean like physically going down into the ship. It's a euphemism within Hebrew language that represents going down into the grave. And to further emphasize that, they say going down with them in a ship to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. What is the writer of Jonah here saying? Saying every step that Jonah takes away from the presence of the Lord is a step towards death. So, Jonah's payday was also coming. How does God respond to this? Well, if you've heard the story, you know exactly how he responds. They set off on their journey, and God hurls a storm upon the sea. It becomes so violent and vicious that even these experienced sailors are afraid. They're tossing stuff overboard. The captain of the ship is just terrified. He's running from person to person, and he's saying, get up, pray to your God, pray that whatever God is doing this will give us some mercy so that we won't die. And Jonah's below deck, and he's sleeping. And the captain bursts in and says, why are you sleeping? Verse 7, why are you sleeping? Well, before this, he says, why are you sleeping? What do you think you're doing? Get up and pray to your God so he'll have mercy on us. And then in verse 7, it says, they say to one another, come, let us cast lots, like cast dice that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. So they said, Jonah, who are you? Tell us, what did you do? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? And of what people are you? Jonah said, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord. Who is the Lord? He's the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Okay, this might have something to do with what we're going through. And then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because Jonah had told them. Jonah was pretty brazen about running away from God. And he made it pretty clear that he thought this was because of him. So the sailors turn to him and they say, what, what should we do? And Jonah says, throw me overboard. He knows exactly what they should do. But these sailors, these guys who don't know the God who made the heavens and the earth and everything in them, they want to have mercy on Jonah. They don't want to be held accountable for his blood to this God who is apparently judging them. And so they instead try to throw stuff overboard. They try to row back to land. They can't. Nothing that they do is getting them any closer to safety. And finally, they turn to God. Isn't that like all of us too? When we're at the end of a rope, finally, we turn to God. But finally, they turn to this God and they say, don't hold, don't hold us accountable for this man's blood. We're only doing what we think is necessary, basically, is what they're saying. And so they take Jonah and they throw him into the sea. And immediately, this great, exceeding calm descends on the sea, and everything's okay. And instead of shouting and rejoicing and being happy and high-fiving each other, woohoo, they become exceedingly afraid. And they, in turn, make vows to this God, promises to this God that they'd never known until now, and they make sacrifices to him. What are they doing? They're committing to him that he's going to be their Lord. Not just the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. He's going to be their Lord. Because he had demonstrated that he's worthy of that through what had happened. 
Have you ever wondered, if you've heard this story, why God picked Jonah? I mean, if he's God, he knows everything that people are going to do. He knows exactly how Jonah's going to respond. But instead, he, he does call Jonah. Why didn't he call someone who was just going to go and do what he told him to do? I've wondered that. Frankly, I've wondered about myself sometimes. Why does God call an imperfect messenger to do a job that needs seemingly perfection? I want to tell you a story about that. While we were in Cairo, this would be about a year and a half ago, we were trying to renew our visas. And uh, we had to do that, I had to take all of our passports down to a big, huge government building in the middle of Cairo, Egypt, called Mugama. And going in that building, uh, if you didn't arrive early, I'll put it this way, you just wouldn't get it done. So like, you talked about Black Friday, like, you know how that is, you know how the crowds are, you know how nuts people are about getting in the store. Like, imagine that and then like multiply it by 20, because it is that way every single day at Mugama. You have to get in there like the moment the door opens, or you're just going to miss your chance to renew your visas. So I woke up early that morning, and uh, you know, guys, even though I've been walking with Jesus for a while, and I'm, you know, I'm a missionary, so I'm supposed to do uh, stuff a certain way, I didn't spend a lot of time praying or talking to God or listening to his word that morning. I had one thought, I got to go get these visas renewed. I just kind of woke up and had this kind of like mental conversation with God, like, okay, Lord, you know what I got to do? Let's do it. So I ran out the door, got in a taxi, got there on time, get in the building, run up the stairs to the window I know I had to go to, got all my paperwork, I think, except the lady at the counter says, no, you need to go make copies of this thing. So I said, all right, so as I'm turning around to leave, I see this little man next to me. He's an Indonesian man. I know it from how he dresses. I've seen a lot, there's tons of Indonesian folks in Cairo studying to uh, be Islamic teachers. And he was just, he was reading the Quran, which is the Islamic holy book, in Arabic, just furiously reciting to himself under his breath. I think, as I'm turning around thinking, I got to go get my copies, I think, wow, that guy's pretty religious. So I run downstairs, and uh, I see that this line for the copies is just, really long. It's never been this long before, and I get there, and I think, okay, the day's done, but I'm going to try anyway. So I get up to the back of the line. I'm thinking it's going to be at least an hour or two in this line, and then as soon as I think that, this huge, burly Egyptian man kind of like lumbers up to me from around the corner and looks down his nose at me and says in like the sweetest Arabic lisp, do you need any copies? <laughs> and I said, why, I, I do. <laughs> And so he grabs me by the arm, like hooks his arm around mine, and like rushes me around a corner. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm being taken advantage of. Let's see what happens. And he takes me to another copy window that I didn't know existed, and he shoves me to the front of the little line there. He demands that I get priority. He takes the correct amount of money from me, and like a second later hands me back the copies I needed of my passports. And I thought that was odd. That was really weird. So... And Instead of pausing to think too much about that, I just ran back upstairs because the clock is ticking. I get to back to the first window, and I realize, oh, i got to buy stamps now. So I go down to the stamp window. I put my hands in my pocket. I have all the money I need minus one Egyptian pound. And I'm talking about the God of mercy today, but um, the ladies at the stamp window don't joke around. They don't show mercy at all. And I knew they were not going to let me, like, excuse me by one Egyptian pound so I thought, God, what am I going to do? You know, finally, what? At the end of my rope, what am I doing? <laughs> I'm calling out to God. And in my heart, I just stop, surrounded by all these people in the middle of the hallway, and I say, God, I've been running from you today. I've been trying to do it my way. If you want me to get these visas today, 
please show me where to find some money. And there's a story in the New Testament that is told about Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, who when he needed some money, Jesus said, oh, go down to this lake, throw a line in, and the first fish you pull up, any of you guys like fishing, by the way? A few guys? Yeah, a couple of you guys. All right, throw the little fishing line in, and the first fish you pull up, you're going to find exactly how much money you need to pay for that thing. That's pretty odd. It's pretty cool, too. And that story just in a second popped into my mind, and I thought, okay, Lord, if you knew where to tell Peter to go and find money, then you know where I can find money now. And the way that God speaks sometimes, it's in so many ways, but in this moment I felt like I had this idea come to my mind and it was, look in your pockets. I thought, that's funny, I just looked there. That's how I know I don't have any money in my pocket. Um, but I also had this bag with me, and I looked in all the pockets of the bag, and there in the bottom of one little pocket I never use, I pulled out this shiny little one-pound Egyptian coin. I thought, God, you're amazing. This is so simple. It's really not that serious. It's not that consequential. I could come back, but thank you for loving me enough to help me with this little thing. Thank you, God. So with my heart a little bit more in line with, with the Lord, I rushed down to the stamp window. I saw Mr. Religious Indonesian Man kind of like running next to me to get to his stamps too. And I was thinking, <laughs> you know, in my mind, he wasn't like the religious Indonesian guy who needed to hear about Jesus. He was like my competitor. I'm going to beat him to getting my, my visas renewed, right? And I managed to get ahead of him. I buy my stance. I run back to the first window. He's right behind me. I'm like, yes, got here first. And I get to the window, and I pay for everything. I give the stamps. All the uh, papers are there. The lady says, come back in a couple days. It'll be ready. Yeah, it's good. I finally did it. I turn around, and I start walking away. And another idea comes to my head, and it says, you stop. You stop right there. Don't you walk another step. You got some favor at that long line, found a line that you didn't know existed for the copies. You came upstairs and I put money in your pocket, but it had nothing to do with you. You turn around and you talk to that religious Indonesian man and you tell him about Jesus. You tell him about what I've done for him. And I, I said, okay, Lord. I looked at my bag and I had something else with me I didn't realize. I brought a um, Gospel of Luke in Arabic and I knew this guy spoke Arabic, even though he was Indonesian, because of how he was interacting with the Quran. So he finished his business. He turned around. I introduced myself. I said, hey, I saw you doing the visa thing today. I saw that you also were reading the Quran. Have you ever had a chance to read the words of Jesus? He had this big smile, and he said, no. But I said, would you like to? He said, I'd love to. So I gave him this um, Gospel of Luke in Arabic. He smiled. He hugged me, and we went our way. And I thought, God, you really, really love people. There's so many people here today, and you just totally orchestrated every detail of the events of my morning, timing it to the second, that I would be here to give this man a New Testament or a Gospel of Luke in Arabic, something he can understand about what you've done for him in Jesus, the moment he'd finally have mental space to think about it. Thank you, God. You know, sometimes I think the storms that happen in our lives, the difficulties that happen, don't just happen for our own sakes. You know, the tire blowing out, or the things don't going as planned, the boss fussing us at work, or, you know, kids changing our uh, daily schedule, our family members kind of getting us off on an errand we didn't want to get on. The, the little tiny distractions of our lives that upset our schedules or make things difficult, maybe they're not for us. Maybe it's God's way of getting his message across to someone who needs to hear it. And God was doing exactly that with Jonah. He sends an imperfect messenger. Why? 
so that those guys who didn't know a thing about the God who made the heavens and the earth could make vows to him and sacrifices to him and say, you are the Lord. Maybe it didn't have anything to do with Jonah and everything to do with these guys. But you know how the story goes. Jonah goes down in the water, a big giant fish swallows him up, and from the belly of that fish, Jonah cries out a prayer of repentance in a sense, saying, okay, God, at the end of this prayer, he says, salvation really does belong to you. And then it says that the fish, this is so gross, the fish vomits him up onto the dry land. And I don't know about you, but I read that and I think maybe we're still trying to get the impression from the author that uh, God still isn't pleased with Jonah. (laughs) But vomited up onto dry land anyway. And he finally says, I'm going to go to Nineveh. And as he goes to Nineveh, he goes, he walks a day's journey into the city, it says. It must have been a huge city. And he preaches the shortest sermon ever recorded a tad shorter than the one you're hearing today. Uh, It's seven words. It says, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And this wicked, vicious nation that didn't want anything to do with Jonah's God, you would think they'd just laugh him off. What do they do? Look real quick at uh, chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. This is how Nineveh responds. The word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne and he removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth, which is like this burlap, really rough stuff that people use for praying and showing that they were repentant. He sat in ashes and he issued a proclamation and he published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent so that we may not perish. There was no promise of mercy, but what did God do? Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, not with their words, but with their actions, how they turned from their wicked way, God relented from the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The people of Nineveh were facing disaster if they didn't respond and if they didn't repent. These brutal killers were facing a death sentence for their crimes. They had committed offense against this holy God who created a good world where people would not kill and brutalize and rape and destroy and skin alive and do horrible things to each other. But in his love and in his mercy, he hears their cry for mercy and sees their repentance. Here's the king say, turn away from your wicked ways. Don't do this violence anymore. Don't do these things that offend God. Maybe he'll have mercy, and God does have mercy. He relents from disaster. The people of Nineveh did repent at the preaching of Jonah. But behold, today, something, someone greater than Jonah is here. For God so loved this world, that he gave his one and only son, that if anyone believes in him, he won't die, but he'll live forevermore. How could that be true? Everybody dies, right? But Jesus unpacked that later on in John's gospel when he said, I, Jesus, am the resurrection and the life. He said, whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet will he live. Do you believe in the sign of Jonah? Do you believe 
and the divine Son of Man who paid your death penalty was buried three days in the belly of the earth and he rose again. God commanded the mouth of the grave to open and Jesus stepped forth never to taste death again. Don't make a mockery of his cross. Can I be a little real with you? Can I be a bit firm with you? Don't make a mockery of God's cross and don't go doing the things that he died for. Don't cheapen his grace. If he died for you, don't, doing these, don't keep doing these things that offend his holiness and his mercy. The people of Nineveh repented when they heard the sentence that had been handed down to them. And God relented from the promised disaster. Don't you think today is the day to turn from sin and rebellion against God? And to believe on Jesus, the resurrection and the life. Though you die, yet shall you live. The story concludes with Jonah seeing, finishing his sermon, seeing the city in chaos. He prays an angry prayer to God because he says, God, I knew that if I preached this message to these people, then if they saw your holiness and your power and your judgment, they will call out to you. And because you're a God who's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster, you would show them mercy. Jonah was pretty ticked because he knew what these people had done to his people. And in his mind, he's thinking, they don't deserve it. They don't deserve this. They deserve the destruction. So what does he do? Even though he sees God relenting, he goes out of the city, he gets up on a high place, and he looks down at the city in the heat, waiting to see if something's going to happen anyway. And it says that God appoints a plant to grow up over Jonah, just miraculously, and it gives him shade from the heat. And it says Jonah loves the plant. He's exceedingly happy by it. And then the next night, God appoints a worm, a caterpillar, a bug, to go and eat that plant and kill it. And Jonah becomes exceedingly angry. How do you think God responds to Jonah? This is what he says in verse 10 of the last chapter of Jonah. The Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night, and it perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their left hand from their right, and also much cattle. It's as if he's saying, Jonah, if you don't care about the people, at least care about the animals. God expected Jonah to show the people of Nineveh the same mercy that he received when he was in that fish and on the boat. He expected Jonah to show mercy because Jonah's heavenly father is merciful and he expected him to look like him. You know, our landlady, I mentioned earlier, continued to be a challenge to me as our time went on in, uh, in Maryland. And the time came about two, three months into our stay where I was so upset about it and so uh, just wrapped up around it that God, just in his grace, gave me the gift of conviction for how my attitude was towards her and showed me that by in a, in a revelation of just how sinful I am and how many ways I rebel against his authority and push him out of my life, showed me how deserving a punishment I am and that if I don't show her the same mercy that God's shown me, then I'm a hypocrite. And I dare not call myself a follower of Christ. Shame on me to call myself a minister of the gospel if I don't. So I went to Walmart. I bought her a gift card, bought her a card. I wrote, thank you so much for being our landlady. 
I wish the simple, silly thing wasn't as hard as it was, but it was. I put it in the mail. I know she got it. She thanked me for it at the beginning of the next year. And she didn't change a bit, right, honey? Not a bit. We actually had to get a mediator to come and help us negotiate how to get out of the apartment. <laughs> it was so horrible. <laughs> My heart changed dramatically the moment I put that sucker in the mail. My heart towards her changed, and I stopped looking at her as my enemy to someone that I just wanted so much to experience the same mercy that I had experienced, to know the God who is so good and worth giving everything for because he's given everything for us. You know why Sarah and I and other missionaries go to resistant people, people who don't want to hear the gospel or act like they don't? Because it's exactly what God has done for us. Romans 5.8 says, this is love. I'm sorry, different verse. It says this, that God showed his own love among us in this, that while we were yet sinning, Christ died for us. While we were in the middle of our sin, Christ died for us. That's the God I follow, and that's the God that our landlady needed to know, and I needed to represent to her. And there's people in your life today that need to experience what you've received in Jesus that need to know the message that ought not stop with you, that God is a God of mercy, that we ought to show mercy because our Heavenly Father is merciful and he wants us to look like him. Friends, who's going to go to the hard places? Who's going to go to the difficult people in our neighborhoods or in the jails or at the street corners? Who's going to go to those places? Who is going to go to the people who make everyone angry? If we receive mercy, is it right for us to withhold it from family, from friends? from our neighbor. Should not we have mercy on people that, unfortunately, the church has held at arm's length for a long time? Should we not have mercy on the gay community, on fundamentalist terrorists and the Islamists? Should we not have mercy on racists? Should we not have mercy on people who don't know their left hand from their right? They don't know how good and holy and true and worthy God is. But he still comes to them anyway and he dies for them. If we don't show them the same mercy that we've received. We're hypocrites. We're liars. We're just pretending to be Christians. We follow a crucified Savior who said, go and do likewise. And until we go to them, we're Jonah we're running away. By God's grace, he will do what it takes to get Jonah where he needs to go. And he will show Jonah the same mercy he needs to express. God's doing that today in our lives. I think he's doing it today in your life. I want to share a short video with you. It's two minutes. About a little girl. She's an Iraqi girl living in Irbil, Iraq, in a refugee camp. She had to flee her home when ISIS came and they took over her village. She lost everything. I want you to see how she responds to that. She's being interviewed by an Egyptian TV, children's TV show host. Uh, it's a Christian TV show, so there's the context of Christianity. Um, you might need to come forward if you have problems reading. It's, uh, it's dubbed. It's, it's got captions. But read along and see how Miriam responds whenever you're ready. Tell me, what are you doing here in the environment? Four years. What is the most important thing that you love in Karakosh is not here in the environment? We were in our house and we were disappointed. But we were not disappointed. But thank God, God has saved us. 
قصدك ايه؟ يعني ايه الله سترنا؟ يعني الله حب حبنا و... وما قبل يعني يقتلونا داعش. طيب انت حاسه قد ايه ربنا بيحبك صح؟ ايوه ربنا بيحبنا كلنا مو مو بس انا كل الناس يحبوهم الله. وانت شايفه ان ربنا كمان بيحب الناس اللي ممكن تبقى اذتك وزعلتك ولا لا؟ يحبوهم بس ما يحب الشيطان. طب انت شايفه انت حاسه بايه ناحيه الناس اللي ممكن تبقى خرجتك من البيت وتعبتك؟ ما راح اسويهم ولا شيء بس يعني اقول لله يسامحهم. انت فاكره ترنيمه او فاكره حاجه لما بتبقي قاعده لوحدك كده بتحبي ترنميها او تتكلمي يسوع بيها ولا مش فاكره ولا حاجه خالص؟ عندي ترا عندي ترانيم بتحبي تقولي اكتر واحده انت بتحبيها تبقى صغيره وقصيره بس نسمعها منك ايه رايك اكو واحده was touched by tragedy, heartache, and the potential for great hatred, did not look back on people who hated her. She took her eyes all the way back to the cross, to who Jesus is to her, and she sang a song of love to him, and she expressed, I hope that God forgives them. She had been touched by God's mercy, and she recognized that the way to, the way to solve the dilemma of d ISIS is not more destruction, more unforgiveness, more revenge, but that they would experience the same mercy she'd received, and so she kept on singing. What would it be like for the church, this church, to go out and express this mercy of God to the worst sinner, the least deserving addict, the hardest criminal, the most fundamentalist Muslim you know? What if we were known for doing that and expressing and representing a God who does that in our lives already, it would change your community. It would change this church. It would change your neighborhood. It would change your campus. It would change your workplace. It would change the world. We ought to show mercy because our Heavenly Father is a merciful God and He wants us to look like Him. We're going to pray, and here's the way I'm going to do it. I'm going to ask us if we can get alone with God, as alone as we can in a room full of people, but just closing our eyes and bowing our heads before him as a recognition that he's here with us. I want to speak to three groups of people today, groups that I've represented at several points in my life. Today, if you are angry and there's a person or a group of people or a kind of people in your life that you've assigned the label enemy to, saying God's mercy is for me but not for them, they have it coming. God is calling you today and saying, is it right for you to be angry? Is it not right that, like him, you should show mercy to those who don't know the left hand from the right or people who don't even realize how they've hurt you? Wouldn't it be wonderful if they experienced the mercy of God the way you have and their heart changed? 
today, if that's you and you're saying, God, I know I've been wrong in this way, and I want God to begin praying that you bless these people and changing their hearts and opening their eyes to see who Jesus is. If that's you, I'm just going to ask you to just look up, lock eyes with me for a second, and we'll pray for you. We'll pray for you collectively with everyone else when we do our prayer in a moment. If that's you, just look up at me and lock eyes with me for a second. I'll let you know I see you. I see you. Just put your head back down. I see you guys. Yeah, I see you. Thank God. I see you. Another group of people are here today, and you've been running away from God. You've been pretending to be Christian. Or someone invited you, or you came in here today wanting to know more about Jesus, and you came to realize, I, I am a sinner. I deserve punishment for the life I've lived. And I didn't realize God not only knows how much of a sinner I am and wants to punish me and because he's so holy, but he also wants to forgive me. I didn't realize that he knows all that about me and wants to offer me mercy freely, a gift given to me by his paying for it on the cross, my cross, his cross. I didn't know he wanted to offer me eternal life today by receiving from me a confession of my wrongdoing and giving me life with Christ. If that's you today and you want to either surrender your life to Jesus for the first time or just say, I'm done playing games with God, I'm going to come and follow Jesus as my Lord. If that's you, just look up at me and lock eyes for a second. We'll pray for you too. God's so gracious. Every one of us, by the way, who says that a Christian has ex experienced this point of decision. If that's you, just lock eyes with me today. I see you. Yeah, I see you guys. The last group of people I want to address is the same people that Sarah spoke to. It's those of you who are saying, I feel like I need to be a messenger. I've experienced this mercy. I'm not necessarily angry at people, or if I have been, I'm done with that. But I feel like, like Jonah, God's calling me as a messenger for his mercy, either to my neighborhood, my community, or as someone who does that overseas where there's no access to the gospel, a missionary. If that's you, I want to pray for you. Would you open just put up your head, lock eyes with me for a second. I'll pray with you too. Yeah, I see you guys. I see you. I see you guys. Let me pray for you. God, we're so grateful for your mercy. Collectively, we as your people, as your body, all on one level before a holy God say, thank you for having mercy on us, sinners, hell-deserving sinners, yet you loved us and you died for us. You gave us forgiveness. You gave us life forever. You gave us a place in Christ. You gave us an identity that is so different and radically changed that you would say we are born again when we come into a relationship with you through Christ. Thank you, God. We want to know you more, love you more, serve you more. And today, God, we're saying you're my God. Jesus, you're my Lord. And Lord, also, if we've been unforgiving and unkind and cutting off people from your mercy in our lives, would you forgive us? And God, if that's been us, would you identify that person in our minds and we write their name down and we're going to pray that you bless them. You bless them. Bless them. And as we pray for them, we don't know how their hearts are going to change, but we know our hearts will. And we're going to be freed from all that unforgiveness and bitterness we've been walking around with like chains in our lives. We're going to ask you to give them the same mercy you've given us. We're done with that, God. Thank you. And then, Lord, for those that you are calling to be witnesses, Jesus, every one of us is in a way called to make disciples and make disciples and make disciples. Would you give us your spirit, the same spirit that raised you from the dead, 
to inhabit us, Lord, and do the same work that you've done. To so When we speak that your spirit, your stamp of approval, your power is on to say this is true. And Lord, that the people in our families, our lives, our communities, or across the world that you're calling us to will respond in belief. And we collectively will be before you saying salvation belongs unto our God, our God, and unto the Lamb who sits on the throne. We pray this according to him and in the name of Jesus. Amen.